1982, a baby was born to expecting parents in Bloomington, Indiana. Shortly after delivery, this baby boy was found to have epigonthic folds, oblique palpable fissures, and a depressed nasal bridge, many of the physical findings associated with trisomy 21. Trisomy 21, or colloquially known as Down syndrome, is the most common chromosomal abnormality in live-born infants. With modern neonatology and pediatric surgery, many of these children are capable of living long, meaningful lives. Unfortunately, this patient, who has been remembered as Baby Doe, was not given the same opportunity. After initial feeding intolerance, further investigation was notable for an esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula. His parents were told by members of the medical team that he was not a candidate for surgery because of his diagnosis of trisomy 21. They were told that he would be so severely disabled that he would not grow up to have what we consider to be an acceptable quality of life. On that basis, Baby Doe's parents declined further care, and he died in the hospital nursery six days later. Baby Doe's early death received substantial public attention. This also sparked a national discussion about the quality of life in children with trisomy 21 and withholding medical treatment from babies with disabilities. Today, of course, it's no longer ethically permissible to withhold life-saving surgical interventions from children with trisomy 21 in the absence of serious complicating factors. But as advances in neonatology and pediatric surgery continue to improve, how is the care that baby Doe received in the early 1980s similar to the care that some babies with trisomy 13 and 18 are currently receiving? Some argue that over the next several years, we will see the care of patients with trisomy 13 and 18 follow the same evolution as we did for those with trisomy 21 in the 1980s and 90s. On today's episode, I sit down with neonatologist Dr. Paul Mann to learn more about this topic. We discuss difficult questions, including what does it mean to say a condition is not compatible with life, what comorbidities we should consider, and what medical care we should probably offer to children born with trisomy 13 and 18. This is obviously a controversial topic, but one I think you'll find interesting. All of this and more from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. This is the MCG Pediatric Podcast, and I'm Zach Hodges. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Paul Mann as our guest for today's episode. Dr. Mann is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Chief of the Division of Neonatology. He is also the Director of Clinical Ethics for Augusta University Center for Bioethics and Health Policy. Dr. Mann, how are you? And thanks for joining me. Hey, Zach. I'm doing great. It's good to be here today. First, remind us, what are trisomies and why is this an important topic for us to discuss today? Yeah, so chromosomal abnormalities in pregnancy are very common. They affect about 1 in 150 live births. Trisomy 13 and 18, like trisomy 21 or Down syndrome that we're so familiar with, are aneuploidies. That means there's either an extra or missing chromosome. While trisomy 13 and 18 are less common than trisomy 21, we're definitely seeing increasing numbers of patients that are hospitalized with trisomy 13 and 18 following birth. Uh, Counseling from obstetricians and neonatologists and pediatricians regarding trisomy 13 and 18 has historically been exceedingly pessimistic. For example, parents are often told that their fetus is going to be incompatible with life or that this is a lethal anomaly and that no medical intervention should be offered to the infants once they're born. But in recent years, parents have been beginning to push back on that uh, negative counseling. And they've been bolstered by a lot of positive peer counseling that's found easily in Facebook support groups and other social media platforms. They expect that their babies will receive medical treatments that are available to other babies with congenital or chromosomal abnormalities. That's so very interesting, and there's a lot for us to unpack further. 
Before we get into the details of trisomy 13 and 18, will you remind us how most babies are diagnosed with these conditions? Can this be detected by routine prenatal screening? Sure. Uh, Most babies with trisomy 13 or 18 are detected prenatally due to some combination of abnormal ultrasound finding, routine maternal blood screening, or increasingly cell-free DNA testing. Okay, so thinking about coordinating prenatal care for the mother and delivery of the baby, how can we be sure the prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 13 or 18 is correct? So there are several laboratory techniques that can be used to test fetal samples for prenatal diagnosis. Diagnostic testing is most commonly done by performing a traditional karyotype on cells obtained by amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. The reliability of those tests are greater than 99% and are usually considered diagnostic. Additionally, there's increasing utilization of advanced molecular diagnostic techniques. Chromosomal microarray analysis and whole exome sequencing are important alternatives to karyotyping. They increasingly have faster turnaround times and are more sensitive for detecting smaller chromosomal abnormalities. For those reasons, chromosomal microarrays are currently recommended to be the primary test if a fetal structural abnormality is detected by ultrasound. It does, however, still require an invasive sample by either amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling to be considered diagnostic. So that's very interesting that chromosomal microarrays are replacing karyotypes as first-line testing for fetal anomalies. The need for invasive sampling of amniotic fluid or chorionic villus sampling still seems like a considerable barrier. What's the role of non-invasive cell-free DNA testing that can be done on a maternal blood sample? It's a good question. So cell-free DNA can be obtained by maternal blood sampling starting around 10 weeks gestation. This has been used to screen for many different genetic abnormalities, but is still considered to just be a screening test and should be followed up by diagnostic testing. Okay, so that's important to keep in mind that cell-free DNA testing should just be used as a screening test and only amniotic fluid or chorionic villus samples should be considered diagnostic. Now that we've covered some of the background information, I'd like to work through a case. How's that sound to you? Perfect. Let's do it. So for our case, we have a mother who's pregnant with her first baby and is currently at 30 weeks gestation. At 20 weeks, she had a routine screening ultrasound that detected multiple abnormalities. Following an amniocentesis, she received a final diagnosis of trisomy 18. Now, she's meeting with you to discuss her baby's prognosis and plans for medical care. So, when you're called to counsel a mother prior to delivery about the prognosis of her baby with trisomy 13 or 18, what are the first things that come to mind? Well, the first thing that I think that parents need to understand is that each baby with trisomy 13 and 18 is unique. They're an individual. Their story is going to be different from other babies with trisomy 13 and 18 because we don't know precisely how the genetic aneuploidy is going to impact them distinctively. Similar to the wide range of complications and outcomes that we see with children with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Certain anomalies that are common to infants with trisomy 13 and 18, such as significant structural heart disease, follicles, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, can greatly impact life expectancy and require individual prognostic counseling. It's easy for us to forget that every baby with trisomy 13 or 18 is unique, especially for those of us without much experience caring for these infants. Before we move forward with our case, let's talk more about the specifics of trisomy 13 and 18. What are the main abnormalities that we should remember that are associated with these syndromes? Sure, let's start with trisomy 18 because that's more common. Trisomy 18, or Edwards syndrome, is found in about 1 in 6,000 live births. These neonates are typically growth-restricted and are born with microcephaly and a small face and mouth. 
They're also characteristically known to have rocker bottom feet and clenched fists with overlapping fingers. Complex congenital heart disease and central nervous system abnormalities are very common in these babies and associated with higher morbidity and mortality. So if I'm getting this right, trisomy 18 is Edwards syndrome. It's easy to see how microcephaly in a small mouth might make initial airway management difficult and with feeding as well. Also, central nervous system or cardiac abnormalities might influence our parents' wishes for medical care. Yeah, that's right. So what about trisomy 13? Trisomy 13, which is also known as Pateau syndrome, is less common and diagnosed in about 1 in 12,000 live births. Similarly to trisomy 18, these babies are typically growth-restricted and have high rates of congenital heart disease and central nervous system disorders. That can include holoprosencephaly, which is a failure of the forebrain to divide into two hemispheres and can lead to severe midline defects and neurodevelopmental disabilities. Other common features of trisomy 13 include renal anomalies, cleft lip and palate, and scalp cutis aplasia, which is a section of missing skin on the forehead. Okay, so trisomy 13 is Pateau syndrome, which is less common. These babies have midline defects, including possible holoproencephaly, cleft lip and palate, and kidney abnormalities. Cutis aplasia of the scalp seems like a specific finding that even makes its way onto our board exams. Yes, definitely. Uh, look for that there. Now that we have a general overview, what are the certain pathologies or findings on prenatal ultrasound that might heavily influence how you would counsel this mother? Well, before we begin counseling um, with the mother, I would want to have a frank conversation about goals of care and what's important to this particular family. And that takes into consideration a lot of things, including the presence of significant structural cranial or cardiac or gastrointestinal abnormalities that would be concerning and uniquely impact the baby's prognosis. It should prompt a further conversation about expectations following delivery and what medical interventions that this family feels would be beneficial or not beneficial for their baby. And that makes sense, since these are the common problems that affect many babies that are cared for in the NICU. Thinking big picture, with the best medical care, what do you tell parents the life expectancy is for babies born with trisomy 13 or 18? Well, it's actually kind of hard for us to know what current life expectancy is for neonates with trisomy 13 and 18. And that's because traditionally, we've counseled parents that about a third of these patients will survive to be about a month of age and about 15% to a year. However, a lot of that data has been skewed because clinical approaches to these babies have changed so much in recent years. More recent studies suggest that one-year survival might be as high as 25%. And of all the children that survive to one year, about 90% of those children will make it to five years of age. So all these studies are retrospective and many are single center. And that in itself can reflect a selection bias and have limited power to give us definitive information that helps us to counsel the family that's sitting in front of us. As more centers are offering more routine medical treatments to families of infants with trisomy 13 and 18, I expect the documented survival is going to continue to improve. Most interestingly, the single most important factor associated with mortality in one study was a prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 13 or 18. That suggests the role medical providers have in counseling families prior to delivery and the impact that that has on choices that they make and the outcomes for their baby. We need to be careful that our own prejudices don't affect how we counsel parents and help them to make a right decision for their family. I think this is fascinating because so much of the traditional teaching is that most of these babies die shortly after delivery. The fact that a significant portion of infants who survive the newborn period go on to live for many years makes this a very important topic for us to discuss today for our pediatricians. 
especially because our prior teaching and experiences influence so much of our practices moving forward. I'd like to come back to something. You mentioned the word prejudice. What do you mean by don't let our own prejudice affect how we counsel parents in making their decision? Yeah, so when clinicians believe that an infant's going to have a bad outcome or suffer from significant neurologic disability or just have a rough hospital course, they might steer parents away from interventions that are routinely offered to other infants. As a result, infants can end up dying from things that are easily treatable, such as primary apnea in the delivery room, something that we know has an intervention that we would do for any other baby. So I believe our role in counseling is having an honest conversation about the choices that loving parents can make in these contexts. That can range from choosing comfort care following birth to heart surgery to address structural cardiac abnormalities. But we can't pretend like all clinical care and interventions for infants with trisomy 13 and 18 is an exercise in futility. It clearly isn't. I think this might be one of the most important take-on points from our conversation so far. We need to be aware that babies with trisomy 13 and 18 historically and somewhat currently are not being offered basic newborn care and subsequently die from treatable conditions. This is especially problematic when our parents are not appropriately counseled before delivery and have an overly pessimistic understanding of their baby's prognosis. As a pediatrician, I feel like one of the most common reservations to more widespread acceptance of NICU care for babies with trisomy 13 and 18 is neurodevelopment. What level of neurodevelopment should our families expect for babies born with trisomy 13 or 18? Well, certainly infants with trisomy 13 and 18 are likely to have significant neurologic impairments, and the developmental milestones that they will achieve will be greatly delayed. However, we got to frame this through a lens of what they can do instead of what they can't do. Children with trisomy 13 and 18 can learn to recognize family members. They can learn to smile and laugh. Some are able to feed themselves, play independently, understand simple words and phrases, and follow commands. A few can say mama or papa and communicate through pointing. Many can sit without assistance. Some learn to crawl, and others even learn to walk without a walker. I think reframing the conversation into what these children can do is so important. Before you and I spoke first, I had no idea that babies with trisomy 13 and 18 could possibly reach these milestones. This is just evidence of how much I have to learn about caring for these infants. Thinking back to my medical school training, I even remember these syndromes being described as lethal and incompatible with life. What comes to mind when you hear phrases like this? Those phrases are paternalistic, misleading, and pejorative ways to describe potentially life-limiting congenital anomalies and genetic syndromes. I think they're the result of medical providers thinking that we can somehow protect parents from the pain of making difficult choices for their babies. We know that they'll likely have a limited life expectancy, but simply accepting an early death for their child without any medical intervention is not helpful because these families will live with the consequence of these decisions and wonder if they made the right choice. They certainly don't help prepare for a range of outcomes that their infants with genetic anomalies can have, including a much longer than expected life. And it doesn't provide a helpful framework for how parents can support and celebrate their child's life, not just wait for their demise. The irony is that these wholly negative statements are inaccurate and don't actually make this situation any easier for our families. I think another take-home point is that we need to consider the range of possible outcomes for these babies. Our counseling needs to be clear, but not overly prescriptive when we're not sure what the outcome will be. I think it's also important that we need to help our parents celebrate their newborn baby. Sometimes simply saying, congratulations for your new baby boy or baby girl, can be very meaningful for the family. 
Dr. Mann, as we're getting short on time, I wanted to move our case forward and discuss a potentially difficult scenario. What is your general approach if parents decide that they want, quotes, everything done for their child with trisomy 13 or 18? This can include intubation, central lines, and other invasive and potentially painful procedures. Well, I think that mindset of wanting everything done comes from a reasonable fear that the medical team won't do routine things to medically intervene on behalf of their baby. I would want to explore with them what what does that mean? What does everything mean to them? And understand how that fits within their goals of care for their baby. I would tell parents that we'd focus our clinical interventions on meaningful medical things that will benefit their infant and optimize their quality of life, not just extend life um, without purpose. I talk about the range of loving choices that parents make for infants with trisomy 13 and 18, but more than anything, I would promise them honesty at all times regarding their infant's clinical status and things that I think would help their baby versus hurt them. You mentioned many important concepts here that I want to reinforce. I think the fear of not receiving the best medical care for their baby is something that we as pediatricians should be aware of. Careful and sensitive communication with parents and their family is an important first step in learning more about their goals and wishes for their baby. Also, exploring ways to optimize their quality of life and focusing less on prolonging life could be helpful. This also seems like a great time to ask for help from other specialists like genetics or palliative care if these services are available. Yeah, I think optimal care for these babies is really a group approach. In our NICU here, I'm supported by a great group of caring people that try to help families navigate difficult situations and make good decisions for their babies. Those people include our case managers, they include our social workers, they include pastoral care. And certainly uh, with the recent addition of palliative care, our support for these babies has only increased But these families need a lot of support. They need people to sit with them, talk through things with them, think about what is it going to mean? What does it look like to celebrate their baby's life rather than just wait for their baby to die? You know, these families and these babies have such complex needs and they need a large team of experts to help take care of them. Well, Dr. Mann, this has been an excellent conversation. I think it'll be really interesting for our audience. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Do you want to leave our listeners with any final take-home points? Absolutely. I think that in years to come, we will look back on this era of trisomy 13 and 18 management, similar to how we reflect on the care of infants with trisomy 21 from 30 years ago, when we were struggling as a society with, you know, should we fix the duodenal atresia in a baby with trisomy 21? No one questions that anymore. I think that a lot of families with trisomy 13 and 18 have had to fight a system that chose to undervalue their child's life. And I think that we have to do better. We have to do better as clinicians to be honest with these families. We don't want to give them false hope. But we want to give them reasonable hope of what life with trisomy 13 and 18 can look like. I think that the more honest we are and the more that we help them see what goals of care are reasonable, the better that we'll get at caring for these babies and not burdening the family with feeling like they have to fight for a certain outcome for their baby. So very interesting and so much for us to consider moving forward. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. 
and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.